0: West Community Church, living life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference.
1: So if you would welcome for me uh, Rob Hall. Rob is a a guy I love to spend time with. I have not enough time to spend with. He is, uh, I think, our resident theologian. And uh, I love picking his brain. So welcome him as he reads our scripture.
0: Don't pick my brain. It could be very dangerous. <laughs> Imagine holding in our hands the very words of God on a screen and on your electronics. It's astonishing to me. Turn, if you would, to Mark twelve twenty-nine. I think it's up there. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked, Of all the commandments... Which is the most important? The most important one is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your mind, soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied, You are right in saying that God is one, and there is no other but him. To love him with all of your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God and from then on no one dared ask him any more questions while Jesus was teaching in the temple courts he asked how is it that the teachers of the law say that Christ is the son of God David himself speaking by the Holy Spirit declared the Lord said to my Lord set it in my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet David himself calls him Lord how can he Be his son. The large crowd listened to him with delight. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes, be greeted in the marketplaces, have the most important seats in the synagogues. At the places of honor, banquets, they devour widows' houses, and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and he watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth. This poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything. All that she had to live on. Our Father, we thank you for the possibility of putting into uh, worship and into our lives and into your life. Being in union with you, we put in all. You are the Lord of our lives and thus we bow before you. As your children, because you are Lord and because you are the great causer, we live a life of great expectation. And today we look so forward to our shepherd, giving us your word. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Thank you, Rob. So we've been in a series on the real Jesus for quite some time. And for those of you who are wondering how long we're going to be on it, we're going to have one more Sunday next Sunday, and it's going to be an interesting one. And uh, and then we're going to take a break for Christmas, and after the first of year, we're going to come back and deal with, uh, right before Easter, we're going to finish it up dealing with the last weekend of Jesus. But the part of the passage we've been in lately has been an interesting part, uh, for me at least, because it's basically, you could describe it as the place that is Jesus versus... It's this series of debates, it's this series of arguments that are going on where the religious leaders and the political leaders are trying to trap Jesus, trying to trick Him, trying to find something wrong in Him, and it, you just have this series of debates going on. And we come to this section today where, in the middle of this, uh, we tend to think that all the debates with Jesus were acrimonious of nature. They were difficult, tough, accusing, but this one actually comes out of... Uh, religious leader who looked at him and said, wow, you've answered really amazingly. And he asks him this core question that is a, a real common question to be asked of people all throughout Jesus' today, and we ask it today of people who are teachers as well. Uh, it goes like this, of all the commandments, which is the most important? And the Jews recognized 613 commandments, so they're asking him to go 613 and put it in one phrase. What's the most important. And Jesus boils it down to one statement which we commonly refer to this way and know as the great commandment in Christian theology. It's called the love. It says, "The love, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And then he throws in a second. And love your neighbor as yourself. I think I would have thrown in 10 or 15 because I don't think I could distill 613 into 2. But Jesus did an amazing job. And then he says, There's no commandment greater than these. Which basically says, if you read the rest of the Bible, all the other commandments, all those are as commentary as to what love looks like. And for us, sometimes when we read the Bible, if we don't keep that in mind, we get really confused and we misinterpret what it means. If we don't read everything as a description of what love is and of God trying to teach us what that looks like lived out, then we miss the heart of what's trying to be communicated. But Jesus gives an answer here that, frankly, in the midst of all the brilliance we've seen the last few weeks in the debates, is really not a profound answer. The answer he gives is something that was very common. It was actually called the Shema in the Jewish culture. It was the prayer they prayed morning and evening, every day. And so it's not like he's blowing them away with something they haven't heard. But the full Shema actually says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God... The Lord is one, and then it goes on into the what we normally refer to as the Great Commandment: love the Lord your God with your heart, all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. Now, isn't that kind of an interesting prayer? I mean, because that's what it was for the Jewish people. That's not typically what we think of as prayer, is it? And yet, we think of the Great Commandment, and we don't actually remember where it starts. How many of you realize that the hero Israel is part of the great commandment if you have been around church for a while? Most of us start with, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And we treat the rest as a preamble. But I'm going to submit to you today that not only in this text, but in the texts that follow this that we've read today, Jesus is the meat of the text is actually this first phrase of the great commandment. And Jesus actually spends the rest of the time all the way to the climax of this Jesus versus section Illustrating that for us. It starts off and basically tells us a lot about prayer and about our approach to God. It uses the word hear, and that, that word is just basically to mean a listening, attentive heart, and, or, or another way to translate it is to give ear. And, you know, when you say to someone in a conversation, will you give them your ear? What are you saying? You're saying, will you just focus your attention? Will you just ponder? Will you just take a moment to set aside? And prayer, Jesus says, is not so much about what we say. But it actually starts with, with hearing. And the context of the words, this word is, is not just listening, it's a worshipful word. It's a pondering, it's an adoring, it's, it's a giving your undivided attention to. Then it goes on to say, Oh, Israel, and we could say that differently. We'd say, basically, saying, Oh, people of God. And remember who Israel was. They were the adopted nation, the adopted people to be His representatives of good and His love to the rest of the world to use. So he's basically identifying with us. This prayer started off with, I need to remember to recenter my life on Jesus, and I need to remember that he identifies with me. He loves me. It's about me. He's coming to me. And then it goes on from there. and says, The Lord our God, the Lord is one, which is both an amazingly exclusive statement, And it's also an amazingly all-encompassing, inclusive statement. It's basically telling us there is no other God, and to Him we have to swear ultimate allegiance. An exclusive statement. Excluding people who think differently than that as as being not truth. But yet it's all-inclusive in the fact that it says He is the only one who created everything that we have, everything that we are. He's one. He's the one most important thing. It's this worshipful reorientation that he invites us to, then followed by a pondering of the complete amazing love of God with all of our being. Jesus, in a sense, as he's been doing through this whole debate time, is teaching us again about change and how we change. And the problem is when we get the first and second commandments right, but we... uh, we tend to fall into the trap of religion when we when we focus on these commandments, and we tend to trade a, a slavery to obvious sin to a slavery to religiously trying to learn to love and rid ourselves of things that are unloving and prove ourselves, which gets at the core message, the core question of today's message, which is this: What motivates you to change? How does real, lasting change happen in our lives? And Jesus presses this question a little bit further in our text today, and he says it this way. When you examine your motivation, we could, we could summarize them this way. When you examine your motivation for change in life, is it love versus what? Now, many years ago, six, seven, eight, nine years ago, I was talking with a really good friend of mine. He was telling me about his son, Chris, and Chris was raised in a wonderful home, went to college, everything was going great, things were going great, he was successful, good kid, great kid, and all of a sudden, for whatever reason, a number of circumstances we don't need to go into, he got caught in a gambling addiction. And it kept coming back over and over again, and, and, and every time he 'd blow it, he was so remorseful he 'd come to friends of his he 'd come to his dad and he 'd just say how sorry he was, and he 'd repent and he'd put he 'd pursue his relationship with God and try to try to do things right, and things were going a little better for a while, and he got married to this wonderful, wonderful lady. And who knew fully about his past and they put systems in place to make sure that it was going to be okay and he wasn't going to jeopardize the family income. But somehow, Chris would occasionally find ways around all those systems and he'd go and blow the stuff they needed for their core money, their core expenses. And I, I remember talking to the dad throughout a couple-year process of, of working with him. And, uh, and the dad would just say, how... How much he 'd be with Chris, and Chris would just cry. he would just say i don 't want to be like this. I wish i wasn 't like this i can 't seem to change One day, his dad got a call that his son Chris had stolen money from his job and his employer and gone and blown it, and he was on his way to jail, and his marriage was over and maybe you found yourself in similar circumstances, maybe not maybe not as severe hopefully not as severe and painful, but many of us probably have found ourselves in circumstances like that where we've sinned or someone in the right life around us has sinned and they repeat that sin over and over again and they repent. and they, We promise to change. And, and when it's us, we promise to change. And sometimes we even go as far as promising to God that we're going to get back in church or we're going to get in a relationship or we're going to get in the Bible or we, we list these things that we're going to do in our faith to try to bring change. And then we do it ever again, and sometimes it's really disillusioning. When we wonder, will I ever change? And the problem is that there's lots of things in life that we hang our hope on for change. For Chris, the hope was in wealth, and that wealth would make his life better. And for whatever reason, that sought made him choose to seek quick gain to try to solve his ills and his problems. But But for all of us, when we continue to fall and we return to that same place of defeat, uh, isn't your reaction that you kind of pump yourself up and you try to get more hope, you try to resolve and go out and do the right thing, and we keep pumping up our hope, and then each time we fall, it just seems like we fall a little further. Even if we don't fall further behaviorally or morally, we fall further in our passion and our zeal for being something more ideal, something better. I think it begs the question, how do we deal with real-life change? Because we all face seasons where there's slow change, right? And, and, and how do we deal with the seasons when we regress? When we just want to say to ourselves, with almost with a loathing sense, I thought I was over that. And now it feels like I'm back at square one. As a staff, we've been actually working through a book called Redemption by Mike Wilkerson. And, uh, and it's a book that we're going to use for some groups in the future. So that's the reason we've been working through it as a staff together. Chapter 7 actually addresses this thing, this issue of, of how, what do we put our hope in for change? What are the common things that all of us put our hope in? And let me just summarize what he says. We, we tend to, for some of us, we tend to put our hope in staying busy and, and finding something that's a, it's a diversion. And sometimes that staying busy is work, and it's we do a really good job, and it looks good, and it's healthy. Sometimes that diversion is uh, volunteering or exercising hard or just doing things to keep ourselves busy. How many of you find yourself never having mental downtime? Whenever you have downtime, you're always picking up the iPhone. I, I, I struggle. I have to watch myself. I have to be guilty. I, I, I can be guilty of this. Picking up the iPhone and just constantly keeping yourself busy, constantly keeping yourself diverted from any kind of mental downtime. A lot of us tend to try to avoid doing the things we don't want to do by diversion, by constantly being busy, by never giving ourselves time to think about it, or we deal with our guilt and not having to face our guilt of doing the things we do by... Constant diversion, never having mental downtime. Uh, others of us, uh, uh, or others of you, may, maybe you can't do that. Maybe you can't do the constant busy. Maybe you can't do what you might refer to as turning a blind eye and, and to life and numbing it. So you decide instead to intensely pursue growth. After all, a more disciplined approach to life in pursuing growth leads to greater success, right? Right? And, of course, we know there's truth in that. A few years ago, I was sitting in a room with a guy who was one of the most successful entrepreneurs in America in terms of a church and faith world. And he was talking about somebody who was even more successful than him and, and the, lots of questions going back and forth, everybody wanting to know what makes you successful and all this stuff. And he looked at us at one point and he said, You know, Wayne, he was referring to a guy named Wayne, he says, Wayne is far more disciplined than everybody else in this room. And that sets him apart. And isn't there a measure of truth in that, right? We all understand that, right? But when we live in that life, that sense of constant probing, that sense of constantly having to look for the next weakness, constantly having to look for the next problem, constantly having to deal with that sin and try to root it out and just just this intensity of trying to get rid of everything, isn't that, for you, doesn't that lead to a really heavy... Life? Doesn't it lead to a life where you go, man, am I ever going to get to the bottom of this? Tim Keller comments on it. He says, there's a certain sense in which we spend our entire lives thinking, We've reached the bottom of our hearts. We've dug that roto-rooter deep enough and we've gotten everything out in there. We've got, we've dealt with enough of our weaknesses and our failings that aren't necessarily sin-oriented, but we just gotta fix them and be more disciplined. We've dealt with enough of that that we come to this point where we, or we hope we'll come to this point where we've hit the bottom and there's nothing else. And, And he goes on and says, it's only to find it's a false bottom. There's always more. There's always deeper. There's always something more we can do. And how do we live with that stress? Some put their hope in Christian accountability relationships. And we think as long as someone is keeping an eye on us, as long as we have this spy in our life who we trust, who's looking over our shoulder, examining our our, our, our actions, that, that we won't stray too far and we'll be okay. And again, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the importance of confession, right? The Bible talks about Confess so that you may be healed. And the fact if we don't have those kinds of relationships in our life where we're honest, where we confess our junk honestly with people, we will always be religious. We will always be hypocrites until we learn to have that kind of freedom in our relationships with people. We'll never experience grace until people know us for who we are and because of Christ in them love us in spite of it, right? So that's important. But a wayward heart is never truly restrained by the accountability of others. If that's all that keeps us from sinning our watchful eyes, it won't last long. Others put their hope for in, in, in a change in season in life. You know, there's the... There's the whole idea of uh, the young man caught in pornography and he believes that if he gets married that, and has unrestricted access to sex, he will solve everything. Now, first of all, we've got to ask the question, what on earth is that guy smoking, right? I mean, that's just not reality in marriage, right? It doesn't change things, does it? But we've got other people who think that, well, a different job will change me, a different opportunity, a different boss. A, some people go and hang their hope on having kids will, will help motivate me to live better because I don't want to pass on to them what I received growing up. And so there's something about kids or grandkids that will help motivate me or, or a new relationship that will give me a sense of meaning and remove the drive that leads me to those destructive behaviors in my life. But they don't work. And then there's some who put their hope and... This is kind of a hope, and hope in this one is kind of hard to put together. It's almost a fatalistic, overwhelmed sense of hope. That, and it's this, that one day the wave that hits me with all the cruddy way I'm living will be so big and so strong that it will make me hit bottom, and I will feel so much pain that I'll finally have the want to, to really change. It's not like the other one that's trying to find bottom by constantly pushing and being intense about solving all the problems in our life. This one is just kind of sitting there going, someday life's going to steamroll me and maybe it'll be painful enough and maybe then I'll be able to change. But until then, I'm pretty hopeless because nothing seems to work, right? There's no solid hope in any of these. And yet I think for all of us and myself included, don't we find ourselves putting hope in some of these things we read the self help books we read the be- best books on business we read the best books on marriage we do the classes we do the things we try to and sometimes we just hope that sticking together and time will fix all everything in life we all fall prey to these things but none of these hopes have anything to do with god all of them are hoping in ourselves they're hoping in others they're hoping in circumstances. Wilkerson's conclusion to that chapter is basically our own ability to grow and be changed is not based in our ability to keep a promise, but on our ability to know and trust God's love, to trust the power of His love in us. When we look at only the two commandments and not the preamble, as we said before, we're tempted to fall back into proving our love, Right? We read these two commandments about proving our love to God, or about loving God and loving others, and we want to prove it, right? So we work really hard to prove our love. Or we strive for it. We put all the things in place, or, or we fall prey to trying to root out all the unloving things in our life and being negative-focused, problem-solution-focused. But the great commandment tells us that's not the way. It starts by worshiping and adoring the one who identifies with us by turning our attention and looking at him and listening to him, not in anything we do. The one who loves us so much that he calls us his own. Jesus goes on to illustrate this actually in the next riddle, which we look at and go, well, this is just kind of a a strange messianic riddle. But there's so much more in the passage. It says, While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, How is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared. Now let's stop there for a minute. Jesus is quoting Psalm 110, a a psalm written by David. And notice what Jesus himself, just, just as an aside, what Jesus says about this psalm. He doesn't say these are just the words of Jesus. He says, David, writing, speaking by the Holy Spirit. This gives us a little clue into how Jesus thought about the Scriptures. They weren't just the writings of man. They were inspired by God. And the Lord said to my Lord, and he goes on, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be His son. So let's look at this. Jesus starts with a commonly understood premise by all the Jews that he's talking to. That premise is simply this that the Messiah would come and he would set everything right. The greatness of the nation of Israel would be restored. Everything would happen and he would be a descendant of David. Those were commonly understood things. He starts with the premises of the people that the people know. And then he says, if that is the case, how can David both call the Messiah my Lord? and him also be his son. Now, we have the vantage point now that's, uh, that we understand that. But can you imagine how confusing that was to the people then? We have the vantage point knowing that if the only way that can be is if Jesus is not only a descendant of David, but he's also the divine son of God who preexisted David. And that explains that piece. But what Jesus is getting at really larger, in a larger sense, in the argument here with the people of his day is he's saying to them your lens of truth your paradigm your if we want to use a big word your epistemology your filter for deciding and seeing what truth is is off you see all of us have a grid through which we filter and decide what truth is we all have our own colored lenses through which we see the world there's in and, and 1 Corinthians 1.22, Paul actually cites the two major lenses that all of us have. One of, we, some of us pick one, some of us pick the other. That You can look at cultures throughout all of history, and they sway between these two grids for deciding what truth is. And there it says, The Jews demand a sign, and the Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Let's look at that. The Jews, it's basically saying our, they decide what truth is through experience. Have you ever been baffled reading the, reading the Gospels, the eyewitness accounts of Jesus, when he does all these miracles and yet the Jews come to him and say, Give us a sign. What's that about? They're wanting some sort of experience that is so watertight that nobody can ever doubt it and nobody can ever argue with it in order to say, I'm going to follow you, Jesus. You are who you say, say you are. And we know from the eyewitness accounts that Jesus does experiential very well, right? I mean, we see lots of miracles and lots of amazing things going on. He does experiential. But no experience creates a watertight argument for us to come to faith and for us to trust. You know, I've seen people healed miraculously, and I've seen them walk away several years ago and go, I don't know if that was God when it was just a powerful, amazing experience. It says the Greeks are seek wisdom. They're rationalists. The Greeks are sitting back there going, give us an argument that explains every question we have. Remove all the questions I have, and then I'll come to faith, right? And we know that Jesus does rational really well. What have we just been looking at in this whole debate thing? It comes to this passage of Scripture, and he's been confronted by the brightest, most intelligent people of his day, and it says that yet now they are afraid even to ask a question, the text says. He has done rational so well that the most brilliant people of his day are afraid to ask him another question. Jesus knows logic and evidence, and yet argument that is watertight Is not possible when it comes to faith. Both experience and rational argument, they they play a role in us all coming to discovering truth. But Jesus in this riddle is actually putting forward an argument that doesn't fit either of the world's natural approaches to discovering the truth. He's saying, I am the watertight argument. Me is a person. And I dare you, he's saying, to contemplate me as a person and try to explain me and try to, try to look at me and say, I, I'm not just the son of David, but I'm also the son of God. If you look at me honestly, you can't come to any other conclusion. Jesus is saying the only way to come to faith, to change, the only hope for real change in life is not the experience of hitting bottom or being inspired enough or disciplined enough or rationally convinced enough or having all the systems in place that we need to have in place to perform in order to discipline ourselves. That isn't the answer to real lasting change. It can be a part of it as long as, as long as he's in the right place, but you don't just need experience. You don't just need rational argument. Those are fine. You need me, the person. Of Jesus. And we go back to the what he said earlier, and he said he frames that all in the sense of worship. He says, Ponder me. Worship me. Take some time to look at how amazingly I love you. And allow that to change you. See, our own ability to believe, our own ability to grow and be changed is not based on our ability to keep a promise but on our worship of God and our worship of who He is and pondering that and trusting that His love and trusting the power of His love to save us and to change us and to grow us and to free us. Jesus then tacks on a story which kind of is the culmination of this whole argument with skeptics through this whole passage and the culmination of what He's saying today in the story that we commonly refer to in Christian theology as the widow's mite. He confronts before this, confronts leaders, and he's notice the setting he's in. He's actually in the temple for this whole time. He's on their turf. And we see him, and it says that Jesus sat down opposite the place, just taking a break from teaching, sitting down and people watching, sat down at the place where the offerings were put, and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she gave out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. And actually the word that they, that they translate, just money as a penny, is actually a specific word. And it basically means that she gave this, this coinage, which is the, the equivalent of one thirty-second of a denarius, And we talked about last week that a denarius was the average peasant's daily wage. So this is not much money. I mean, this isn't even enough money to buy a piece of bubble gum that she put in, right? And this passage to us is so inspirational because we look at it and we go, the giving out of abundance versus the giving out of poverty is so inspiring. The giving out of the desire to be seen and be lauded and, and uh, recognition versus the giving out of this depth of pure, sweet commitment. And it's inspirational to us. And some preachers would even look at this whole section of Scripture and say, the moral of the message is if we love God and understand His love for us, then we'll care for the poor. And I think that is a part of the message here. But it's not the core of what Jesus is getting at. The focus point is not on the poor, nor on what she gave, nor is it even on money. This is not an issue of money that's being talked about here. This is about the heart out of which you are giving And whether you've really reconciled who you really are before God and what that means. You know, we see this kind of sacrifice and there's no way to explain this kind of sacrifice being lauded by Jesus unless it is the expression of absolute trust and love. Uh, The kind of love that you give your life for another. The kind of love that a parent gives their life for a child. Or actually, probably more appropriately, the kind of love of a child who knows that their parent has that kind of love for them and would give everything for them, and they just rest in that love and trust God and trust their parents. This is about where your hope is placed and how the realization of faith takes place. Out of her poverty, it says, she put in... All that she had. And when it says that she put in all that she had, it's using a word called bios, which is basically the word for life. She's, she put in her entire life. She completely gave up control. Nothing held back. So it kind of made me ask the question, because I've never, until I studied this more this week, there's some of this I hadn't seen. And I had asked the question, why is this the climax of the whole section that deal, Jesus is dealing with skepticism in? I think it's this. Some people say, I have a hard time believing because of intellectual skepticism. And others say because of experiential skepticism. And we've, we've talked about that just a little bit before. How, how, how do I know healing is really from God? How do, how do I know this is God speaking to me or, or touching me and not just my emotions or not just some weird biological-driven sensation? How do I... And skepticism, though, Jesus is saying here, is not really the problem. The problem is not... So much that our mind can't believe, it's that our heart doesn't have a sense that Jesus is really God and doesn't really trust that His love is really true. You see, all too often, it's not because our heart and mind can't believe, but it's rather because our can't is shot through with won't. Because we fear. We fear giving up control. The rich give and live out of their fear, wanting acceptance and wanting admiration. And they, they, they use their money to satisfy their fear in the way they give. The, but the widow gives all. And the only explanation is that she, she understands the depth of love that God has for her. How accepted she is. And this is where Jesus kind of ties this whole section together because we've been been looking at religious people confronting him and secular people confronting him. And he basically comes down to the point where he's teaching us the lesson in this, that the secular and the religious are all the same. We don't see that because when we look at the secular person, we say, the secular person says, I will decide what truth is for me and no one can tell me what I believe or should do. And I determine my own truth. We understand that. The religious person says, I'm going to obey God's rules so that he will bless me and let me get into heaven. And that sounds different, but it's not, because neither one is trusting the love of God. Neither one is starting with worship of God and adoring him and realizing how much he loves them and identifies with them. They're both starting with their own performance because they haven't reconciled their sense, their own personal reality of poverty. They haven't reconciled the fact of the the depth of their sinfulness and that God reaches all the way down to the depth of that and loves them even there. They're still trying to prove themselves. Both are motivated out of a base of fear. And when we look at the five options that we talked about earlier of love versus what, the what in all those situations for many of us is motivated by Fear, proving ourselves, measuring up. And the Bible says perfect love casts out all fear. It doesn't say we learn to love and we cast out all fear because we learn to love. It says perfect fear, perfect, perfect love casts out all fear. We try so hard to strive to change. We try so hard to gain wisdom and knowledge, and it's not a bad thing to go for those things. But what if we spent more time knowing God and just pondering His love, worshiping Him, and experiencing that perfection of love? Being so aware of Him that His love drives out the fear in our life, it, it removes the anxiety over our future and over whether we're going to be good enough parents or whether we're going to make it in our marriage or whether we're going to do good enough in our bitch. It drives out all that anxiety because we know we're loved. Charles Blondin is a name some of you may be familiar with. He's uh, listed as the fifth greatest daredevil of all time. He was a French guy who was an acrobat, and uh, his greatest claim to fame uh, happened in the summer of 1859, some of you may have read the story, when he was the first one to ever stretch a wire across the 160-foot Niagara Falls Gorge and walk across it. His manager, his business manager, Harry, and he came there for the summer, and they drew such a large crowd that first time that they decided, we're going to do this like Every few days or every week, I can't remember how long, how many times it was. So they kept coming up with different stunts that they would do to draw crowds and get people to come. And so you see them over the course of that summer, he, he walks across uh, with a wheelbarrow. He actually went across it on stilts. I don't know how you walk across on stilts. Isn't that amazing? And he uh, he bicycled across it. We've seen that, and now today that's no big deal. But I'm sure you know back then it was probably an amazing thing. Probably the most interesting one that I that I think is cool that he did is one day uh, in order to draw a crowd, he said, "Okay, I'm coming, and you'll see me walk out to the center. I'm going to sit down in the center. I'm going to mix and make an omelet and eat it in the middle of the rope." And he did it. So they come to the end of the summer, and they're going, "Well, what do we want up with now?" We've, I mean, what else is there to do? And they decided to pay $1,000 to any man who would allow Blondin to carry him across on his back. They had tons of people show up. They interviewed them all. They got the ones out of the room who were too heavy because he didn't want to have too much. But they still had a bunch of them show up that day who all said, well, we want to do it. We want to earn 1000 bucks." So the great crowd shows up, and he's got all the people in line, and he asks them the question, Who of you believes without a doubt that I can carry you across safely? And they all said, I do. And then he said, Which one of you will let me do it? And all of them said, Not me. (laughs) Isn't that true of our faith sometimes? Don't we sometimes say, I believe you, God, but really it's not can't believe, it's not it's won't believe? Unless you do that for me. So Blondin, Charles Blondin, turns to his manager and says, Well, we got a big crowd. Got to deliver. Jump on my back. you got to be the one. Harry was a little bigger than he wanted to carry. He was a little heavier than he wanted to carry. And as the story goes that he got out into the middle, and because he was starting to fatigue in the middle, he was swaying more. And every time he would sway, Harry on his back would do counterbalance and try to move the other direction. And every time Harry moved the other direction, it would make him sway even more. And the crowd, as they recorded that day in the comments, basically said they all thought he was going to die because it was getting so bad. And Blondin, in the middle of the rope one time, is said to have leaned leaned around and shouted at him and, and said, "'Harry, till I clear this place, you must become a part of me, mind, body, and soul.'" If I sway, you must rest in me completely and sway completely with me. Do not attempt to do any balancing yourself. If you do, we shall both go down to our death. See, Blondin said, If you try to save yourself, you will lose yourself. And Jesus says the same thing to us. Blondin said, You must trust me completely. And Jesus says the same thing. To you. Blondin, truth be told, could have dropped him. They could have both gone to their death. But Jesus can't because Jesus has already dropped down to the depths of sin into the swirling churn below you and taken all that for you. Will you trust in his love or your strength to stay busy and distracted to bring change? to bring peace? Will you trust in His love or in, your, or in your ability to root out that which is evil in your life and to discipline yourself and put the systems in place so you can get rid of all your imperfections and all your failings and lack of performance? Will you trust that or will you trust His love? Will you trust His love or the people's eyes who look over your shoulder or your spouse or your, your friends who hold you accountable more? Who will you trust more? Will you trust His love or will you pursue change, new relationship, a new job, a new break in life? Will you trust his love or put your trust that someday things will be painful enough that you'll want to change? We see Jesus is asking us love versus what? He wants us to allow Him to search our hearts and to remove evil, right? The Bible talks about that. He, he wants us to learn better wisdom and discipline. He wants us to come into new seasons in our life that are a blessing to us. He wants us to have accountability relationships in our life that are, that are good for us. But walking with Christ is first and foremost, and in all things, centered in His love for you. And your only response that he asks is worship. That you would ponder that love and let that love change you. Instead of trying to solve your problems, know him and ponder him and soak in him in worship. Love versus what? You see, Jesus invites us to his love being the permeating motivation of every change in our life. And that starts in worship, not in our actions, not even in our efforts to love other people today uh, as uh, we worship some more with songs, I want to invite you to, to, as just uh, a symbol of pondering His love, come and receive communion if you want, if you're comfortable. It's the greatest tactile symbol we have of how much Jesus identifies with us and the kind of price He paid that His love can change us. We didn't We put Him there by our sin, but we didn't put Him there by our will. He went there of His own accord for us. It's not us and our striving that makes it happen. So as the music plays, I I just want to invite you to come and receive uh, communion and uh, continue to worship for a moment. We'll close. I want to speak to two audiences just briefly. First, uh, some of you here have been pondering a faith decision and not taking that last step to say, I'm going to follow you, Jesus. You are Lord. I'm going to commit my all to you. I'm going to surrender it all. And today, uh, I think some of you saw that some of your not or really won't. right? I want to invite you to go past that wall and make that decision if you want to make that decision just come and talk to one of us after the service we'd love love to pray with you and talk to you the other application I think is to more all of us in general we are a culture that is uh, successful and driven for success and I think that many of us fall prey to the heaviness of life that we're constantly trying to solve problems we're constantly trying to root out stuff and we walk with a measure of heaviness in our life I want to invite you to take a week off from any critiquing, and instead just simply ponder and worship the love of God, and see what kind of freedom and peace and change it can bring by reorienting from striving to worshiping and loving. Would you do that this week? God bless. Have a great week. If you want prayer, we'll be back in the corner here in the pod area. I Thank you for listening. Join us at Quest as we walk with one another in friendship while discovering the reality and goodness of God together. For more information and service times, visit us online at gotoquest.org.